0: And now, let us turn to Matthew's Gospel, the 26th chapter. Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 30. Let's, through our great high priest, enter into heaven's glory in prayer. Our Father... We ask that thou wilt hear our prayer, that this solemn text that is about to be read and proclaimed will enable us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to come that much closer to understanding what it cost the Son of God to shed His blood for our sins and that in understanding this truth and what it means that He is our great substitute, in our place condemned He stood, that we also will love Him more, who loved us to the uttermost and gave Himself totally to redeem us. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that those who may be here today, young or old, that are lost and do not know the Savior, Will through the work of the Spirit of God, come to know him today. Or that a seed might be planted that another waters, God alone giving the increase. Hear our prayer. We indeed are sinners, but thy grace is greater than our sin. And we are so thankful for the sovereign, free grace of God extended to us in the powerful call of the Spirit of God as the atonement of Jesus Christ is applied to our hearts and souls. Thank God for the unspeakable gift of the coming of the Son of God into this world and His once for all sacrifice for our sins. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand, Matthew 26, beginning with verse 30. So that you remember the context, the institution of the Lord's Supper has just taken place. And we read in verse 30, and this is God's word. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The word of the Lord, please be seated. People of God, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem before going to the cross was on a Sunday. I want to move ahead to Thursday and here we will see our Lord in the garden. If you and I are to be saved from our awful sins, there's only one way possible. God himself must assume human nature. God must become incarnate. God himself must become man. The second person of the Trinity must assume human nature and pay the penalty for our sin. And this he has done. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. He is fully man without sin, but human nature is weak, as we see in a special way the true humanity of Jesus in this text. This text leads us to think about what it costs the Lord to make sinners like us his children. And I want to stress. Christ here in this passage rather than the disciples in their response this morning. Now, sometimes I hear Christians who have gone through the depth of trial saying, Pastor, it was my Gethsemane. No. Only one has gone through Gethsemane. You will never go through Gethsemane. And in this text, we see Jesus' perspective on the atonement that he came to accomplish. That is so often mentioned in Matthew's Gospel. Now, taking all the Gospel accounts of Gethsemane into view, Jesus prays three times that the cup might pass, and He will go to the cross alone. This aloneness is one of the themes that we should take away from our observations of this text this morning. No one but Jesus Christ could do this. No one but Jesus alone Christ could redeem us sinners from our sins, and He alone, and I stress no one but Him, He did this alone. He knows that He is about to go to the abandonment of the cross alone. And insofar as we can, let us now enter into the depth of the meaning of the Gethsemane so that we might understand more the glory of the cross and what it means that we are redeemed by it. And so, let's look, as we really must as we go to this text, first of all, at the emotional cost, the emotional cost. Gethsemane means oil press, but Jesus himself is being put into the press of God's wrath in Gethsemane. Matthew might intend for us to see the significance of the fact that Jesus prays in a garden before going to the cross. In the garden, Adam said, My will, not yours. And now Jesus in a garden prays, Thy will, not mine. And Jesus exhorts His disciples to watch and took Peter and James and John with Him, and there the Lord begins His truly agonizing prayer in Gethsemane. Is it not the fact that we most note when we come to this passage that there is there's agony in the words of Jesus. The emotional stress of the Lord is almost indescribable. In Matthew twenty-six thirty-seven, and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. The first verb is lupeo, that means pain and grief. And the second verb is ademoneo, meaning extreme mental distress. And then in verse 38, our Lord says, my soul is very sorrowful even unto death. Remain here and watch with me. And here it uses the term perilupos. And so there's this preposition that means surround along with the term grief. Overwhelmed with distress, surrounded by trouble, J.A. Alexander says, grieved all around, encompassed, shut in by distress on every side. And so our focus is on Matthew, but let me add that in Luke twenty-two forty-four, 44, we are told that he was in agony. And in Mark 14, 33, that he was very distressed. And literally that means he was amazed. He was sorely troubled. And as someone has said, being in the grip of a shuddering horror in the face of the dreadful prospect before him. Jesus sees in this what only Jesus as the sinless Son of God become man can see. The horror faced by the Savior was unbounded. Luke tells us that an angel was sent to strengthen him, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling upon the ground. Calvin remarks, such deadly sweat could only have flowed from a dire and unusual horror. Yes, indeed, his entire body shows the bottomless distress of his soul. Why? Why this agony? Well, you say, of course, it's because of the physical stress that he's under. And yes, this is true. And that stress will become great indeed as he goes through his trial and as he is mocked and as he is scourged and as he goes to the cross. The physical suffering indeed is great. Are you suffering? Does God seem distant from you? God's own Son suffered, and yet He would rise from the dead, and believer, so shall you. There are two reasons, however, that are greater than the physical sufferings that we must see in this text. Two reasons that Jesus is overwhelmed with sorrow. And first, Jesus knew his feelings of overwhelmness would intensify on the cross. He cries out in verses 39 and 42, and again later when he repeats the prayer, he cries out, my Father, Abba, the Aramaic would have been behind his prayer. It's very significant. In drinking the cup of God's wrath, Jesus would lose his sense of intimacy with the Father. Not trust in His Father, but the sense of intimacy with His Father. He was forsaken that you, who now believe in Him, would not be forsaken. Because it pleased Jehovah to crush Him, putting Him to grief, you will never be crushed and put to grief, who believe and trust in Jesus as your Redeemer. But then secondly, Jesus is overwhelmed because He is holy Because we are sinners, we can scarcely know what that means. We see in Gethsemane the revulsion of his holy soul from sin as he ponders what it means that he will bear our sins in his own body on the tree. For that is what the cross is all about. Sin bearing, substitution. He's entering into the vestibule of full exposure to the wrath of God. The sword of justice will come down at Jehovah's command, and he is entering into this reality in Gethsemane. Let me put it another way. When we look to God through faith in Jesus Christ, what do we find? What do we see? What do we know? What do we experience? When we come to God through Jesus Christ, we find a gracious God. He is gracious to us and receives us completely with no wrath, but completely in His mercy and love. But God the Son, when bearing God's wrath, saw no gracious God. God the Son, as the God-man bearing our sin, saw no gracious God toward Him. His death satisfies God's wrath toward us, that only because to Him the wrath was poured out in full as our substitute can we know, can we know by faith a gracious God. So we are covered from wrath because for Him there was no covering from wrath. And that is what God thought of His Son there on the cross that is why Gethsemane, and that is why the Lord Jesus is overwhelmed, surrounded by sorrow. On the cross, Jesus is sin in the Father's eyes. We are told in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Martin Luther once said, Jesus Christ was the greatest sinner. Now, don't misunderstand him. He is morally completely holy. He is undefiled. He is completely impeccable. What did Luther mean? He meant that all of the sins of all of God's people through all of the ages were upon him on the cross so that in God's sight, he was sin in the Father's eyes. So don't you see, as he neared the cross, the weight of what it meant that he, the Holy One, would be our sin bearer, becomes emotionally overwhelming to him in his true humanity. It has been pointed out that the prospect of his sufferings was a perpetual Gethsemane to him. Do you remember how he puts it in John 12? He says, "'Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say?' Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And so, coming into this world, he is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Have you noticed when you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you not one time find Jesus laughing? I'm sure he did. He was fully man. It's not recorded that he laughed. There is some slight humor in some of what he has to say in order to make points. But overwhelmingly, you see, the overwhelmedness of Jesus in these passages in the gospel, because coming into this world, he came for this purpose, and he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. B.B. Warfield said, Though he died on the cross, yet he died not of the cross, but as we commonly say, of a broken heart, that is, of the strain of his mental suffering. And probably this is why he died so soon, and Pilate was surprised to learn that he had died so soon on the cross. I remember Rudolf Bultmann, the New Testament scholar from Germany that did not believe that Jesus died on the cross to atone for sins and did not believe that he rose bodily from the grave. And I remember reading something in Bultmann years ago in which he said, what could it mean to the Son of God to go to the cross if he knew he would be raised in three days? And I thought, what sinful ignorance. Knowing that he would be raised from the dead in three days was glorious and wonderful and was also fulfillment of the purpose for which he came. But Jesus bore in substance our hell. When he went to the cross. Which leads us, secondly, let's just try to get a little more more into this theme, a little deeper into what is happening here in Gethsemane. Secondly, the cost of substitutionary sacrifice. So he prays for the cup to pass. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Again, for the second time, verse 42, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And in verse 44, for the third time, he said the same words in prayer to his father. Again, three times he prays this prayer for the cup to pass. Now, what does that mean? There have been different viewpoints as to what it means that he prays for the cup to pass. There are those who say he's not praying for deliverance from the cross, but from the agony of Gethsemane and from the depression of Gethsemane. And I can name someone of great note who has held to that viewpoint. Another viewpoint is that uh, he was praying to be relieved from premature death here in Gethsemane. Another, that his sufferings not be prolonged to eternity. but No, none of those, none of those work. They, they, they just aren't right. No, no, the only adequate view in praying that the cup pass from him is that he was praying in all of the agony of his soul about the cross to which he was moving. Now, don't misunderstand this prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane. As I mentioned before, it was always a prayer of trust, Even on the cross, his cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, was a prayer of trust. He prayed, my God. It was a prayer of trust. But he faces the cross, and it is abhorrent to him that his holy body and soul would bear what is incomprehensible to him. Our sin, our rebellion, it is abhorrent to his soul. He feels the cost of sacrifice, the cost of being the sinless substitute for sinners like us. The cup, what does the cup mean? What does it mean when he prays using the language of the cup. Well, the cup is Old Testament language for the pouring out of God's wrath. It is a symbol of God's wrath. We saw an example of it when Pastor MacDonald read to us this morning from Psalm 75. We can see the same in Isaiah 51. There's another wonderful passage that I will mention to you in a little more depth here in Jeremiah 25, 15 through 29. In that passage, Jeremiah has been preaching to the people of God, and he's been preaching for 20 years. And now the date is 604 B.C., and momentous events have happened in the ancient ancient Near East. Assyria was falling apart, and the Battle of Carchemish had taken place. And what this meant was it was completely now open for Nebuchadnezzar to invade. And this is when Daniel is taken to Babylon. It's the same setting. Jeremiah passes the cup at God's command representatively to the nations. Can you imagine being someone in the crowd and he said, you be this nation. You be this nation. You represent this nation. All the way down to you represent Judah. And he holds out the cup of the wrath of God and he says, you drink it. You drink it. You drink it. You drink it. Would you have taken to your lips the cup of God's wrath represented in Jeremiah's preaching? Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Would you have taken that cup? Jesus took the cup. Our Lord used this as a symbol Of his approaching sacrificial death. He says in Matthew 20 to his disciples, can you drink of the cup that I will drink? Jonathan Edwards says about this, in Gethsemane, he then had a near view of that future of wrath into which he was to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it, And stand in view its raging flames, and see the glowing of its heat, that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. This was the thing that filled his soul with sorrow and darkness. This terrible sight, as it were, overwhelmed him. For what was the human nature of Christ to such a mighty wrath as this? It was in itself without the supports of God, but a feeble worm of dust." Yes, people of God, Jesus prays in all the fullness of his sinless but real humanity. And he is overwhelmed with the thought of the wrath of God and what it will mean that he will bear that wrath. And so the cup is an awful image. And what is it that makes that image awful? Well, we read it in Psalm 75. Let me read it again, verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed and he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. What makes the cup image so awful? The wicked drink it. Not the godly, not the sinless, the wicked drink it. But Jesus drinks it. The sinless Son of God drinks it. Klaus Gilder, Dutch theologian, says, one would need to have been in hell for some time in order to understand what it is that is tearing Jesus apart in the garden. The awfulness of his situation is that God recedes from him any attempt to understand the meaning of Gethsemane is sacrilege and folly unless it discovers the explanation in the Almighty God. Now, I think what klaus Gilder said was true except for one thing. When he says one would need to have been in hell for some time in order to understand what it is that is tearing Jesus apart in the garden, no, a sinner could be in hell for eternity And still never understand what was tearing the soul of Jesus apart in Gethsemane. Because only the sinless Son of God could understand what he was about to endure. Alfred, the New Testament scholar from the 19th century, our Lord's whole inmost life must have been one of continued trouble of spirit. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But there was an extremity of anguish now, reaching even to the utmost limit of endurance, so that it seemed that more would be death itself. Third thing, the costly drinking of the costly cup. What does it mean for you and for me? Well, this prayer, this prayer of Jesus, that the cup be removed... It was a prayer of resignation. It was a prayer that submitted to the Father's will. It was a prayer that wanted the Father's plan fulfilled, not my will but thine be done. His holy soul, however, could not but shrink from the wrath of God. His holy soul could not help but submit to the wrath of God. He shrunk back, but his holy soul submitted. Both of these things are happening within the heart of Jesus simultaneously. And the only conclusion that you can draw from this is that the cross was unavoidable if we are to be saved. That there was no other way for us to be redeemed. The cross was unavoidable if the Father was to be obeyed. And the cross was unavoidable if God was to be glorified and our souls saved from sin. Do you understand This was not something dispensable. There was no other way, no other way, no other way but this. It means to us several things. First of all, as we look at Gethsemane, it means how awful sin must be. We hardly know. Even those of us who are saved by grace and who are developing within our hearts a holy hatred of sin How awful sin must be that it required the sinless Son of God to pay the price and penalty on the cross. How awful the wrath of God must be. The punishment of sin must be commensurate with the gravity of sin, and this is why it requires the second person of the Trinity, God Himself, to pay the price of our sin. Edwards, who wrote something beautiful says on this theme, says, How stupid and sottish are senseless sinners. Edwards actually used the word stupid. How stupid are sinners that turn from the warning of the wrath of God and from the proclamation of Christ as our only hope. Because let me say to you that if the sinless Son of God recoiled because of what sin is all about from His holy soul, there's no hope for anyone who goes through the wrath of God Forever and ever and ever. Sinners in hell will experience the wrath of God differently than did Christ. Christ did not feel the gnawing of a guilty conscience. He had no guilt. He felt no torment of inward lust and corruption because he had no inner lust or corruption. God never hated him, but he will indeed show hatred to the reprobate. Christ did not suffer despair but those in hell will despair forever. Christ's sufferings were infinitely worthy to pay the price of eternity because His infinite nature gives to His finite sufferings infinite value, but He did not suffer for eternity. If you could but sense the danger that you were in who have not trusted in Christ, you would fall in bloody sweat and cry out in amazement at what Jesus did for sinners. How dreadful were Christ's sufferings. This was not a martyr's death. It was that of the last Adam in our place. Full revulsion towards sin, and yet He bears it for us. But then there's another thing to learn, how great is the love of Christ for sinners. That He would take down the wrath of God in gulps and drink it down to the very dregs the fierceness of God's wrath into his very body and soul for the love that he had for us and in view of sin in its stark rebellion and even knowing his own disciples in gratitude yet he loved And then we learn also how willing is Jesus Christ to receive believing sinners, those who come to Him by faith. Because here is the assurance that the Lord receives every sinner who comes to Him by faith. Is that you? Have you come to Him by faith? He's received you, you're always received. Is there someone here that has not come to Him? He receives sinners on the basis of what He achieved on the cross. And then Christ's obedience to the Father is amazing, isn't it? It is through his obedience to the law and his paying its price that we are saved. Again, Edwards' words, he was the most wonderful instance of submission to God's sovereignty that ever was. If God lays his hand upon us in some acute pain of body, how ready are we to be discontented and impatient when the innocent Son of God, who deserved no suffering, could quietly submit to sufferings inconceivably great, and say it over and over, God's will be done. God's will be done. God's will be done. Now you know, had he failed, he could not fail. But had he failed, all would have failed and we would have been lost forever. Believer, the Lord God will not pour out wrath upon you Because he has poured out his wrath on his own son, our last Adam, our great high priest, who died in your place. This judicial wrath of God against believers is spent. Period. There is no more wrath. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Thinking about this passage from Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord to crush him, putting him to grief. And how his own soul agony is recorded there in Isaiah 53, but also his triumph through the cross. Years ago, I came across something that Alfred Edersheim said in a not not very well-known book. He said the prophecy speaks he's talking about Isaiah 53. The prophecy speaks not only of suffering but of conquering and of conquering by suffering. Now suffering is human and conquering is divine. But to conquer by suffering is thean- to conquer by suffering is theanthropic which means the god man only could conquer by suffering. The God-man, by suffering, conquered our sin. Let me bring Mr. Spurgeon into the picture. How loathsome I am, how loathsome I am in the sight of God. Now he's talking about by nature. I feel myself only fit to be cast into the lowest hell, and I wonder that God has not long ago cast me there, but I go to Gethsemane, And I peer under the gnarled olive trees, and I see my Savior. Yes, I see him wallowing on the ground in anguish, and hear such groans come from him as never came from human breasts before. I look upon earth and see it red with his blood, while his face is smeared with gory sweat, and I say to myself, my God, my Savior, what aileth thee? I hear him reply, I am suffering for thy sin, and then I take comfort. For while I fain would have spared my Lord such anguish, now that the anguish is over, I can understand how Jehovah can spare me because He smote His Son in my stead. Let me tell you, it is not a good thing that in the church today, substitutionary atonement is rarely preached, often no longer believed. There is no hope for us sinners, but Jesus who obeyed the law in our place and paid the penalty of our sin upon the cross. Without it we are lost and undone forever. So the entire event of Gethsemane is inexplicable apart from the truth of the penal, substitutionary atonement of Christ. For as Edersheim again somewhere said, He disarmed death. He personifies death here. He says, Jesus disarmed death by burying his shaft in his own heart. And so let it be understood, there is no fear that he would fail. John chapter 10, 17 and 18, he gave his life, no one took it from him. Hebrews 12:2, 2, who for the joy set before him, the joy, yes, the joy of glorifying God and the joy of purchasing you from your sin, that was joy to him, even in the midst of his suffering. He knew the cost and voluntarily moved toward it to pay the price, now entering the vestibule. It's amazing in how all of this he thinks of his disciples cares about them? Sleep on now. It's too late to join me in prayer now. And perhaps he even sees the torches coming up the Kidron Valley. The disciples were befuddled and they were confused during all of this. And the Messiah, how could the Messiah be arrested? How could the Messiah be bound? How could the Messiah be crucified? The one who healed the sick and raised the dead, how could it be possible that he was taken in the garden? It will be clear why this has happened after he rises from the dead. No, there's a passage in Hebrews 5, verse 7, that says, In the days of his flesh Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Now that's Gethsemane. In the days of his flesh Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence when He was raised from the dead. You know, in verse 53 of this chapter, Jesus says, Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? Of course, He could have resisted arrest and done so Completely successfully. Of course, even on the cross, he could have called 12 legions of angels. Do you ever think about what that means? A Roman legion was 6,000 soldiers, 12 legions. Do you remember in 2 Kings 19:35 that one angel of the Lord destroyed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers? 12 legions, what would that have done? But no, he will not call upon those legions of angels. He will drink the cup. No, he will not call upon angels to spread death throughout Palestine. He will go to the cross and shed his blood. He will die for sinners. He will die alone, and he must cry out in victory, it is finished. So we move on in the narrative, whether it's here in Matthew or the other gospels, and what do we find? Jesus will go on to Calvary and what he will experience, no one else could experience. He did this alone. And lost sinner who may be here today, do you hear this? He went to the cross alone, bore the wrath of God for his people alone. Those who trust him will never bear that wrath. Those who do not will bear the wrath of God alone. Alone. so I call you to believe and to repent. I call you to faith in Christ because you need a Redeemer. And there is only one who can save us from our sins, Jesus Christ, who drank the cup of wrath down to the bitter dregs.